This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back this week with another wonderful conversation, talking with Rabbi Gidon Weitzman of the Pua Institute. And very appropriate, I'm releasing this episode on Passover, Pesach, and by the way, Chag Sameach, happy holiday to anyone listening in real time or within the first couple of days. Those who are familiar with the Passover story are surely aware that the Jewish people at that time, during their sojourn in Egypt, were profoundly prosperous and fertile when it came to producing children. The rabbis teach that six children were being born at a time, which explains the exponential proliferation from a small band of 70 who went down to Egypt to a group of probably two to three million who emerged after only 210 years. And this, despite the decrees put on by the Pharaoh against holding on to male Jewish babies born. And of course, the famous story of the maidservants Shifra and Pua helping to enable these births. And obviously, the daughter of Paro, Batya, saving baby Moshe, Moses, from certain death as he floated in a basket down the Nile River, having been placed there, hopefully, by his sister Miriam. So in that regard, a discussion about fertility and about one of the leading organizations in the world providing access to information and guidance and assistance when it comes to fertility, known as the Pua Institute, is extraordinarily appropriate at this specific moment in time. I had the privilege during my live podcast tour in August 2018 of speaking with its American director, Rabbi Gidon Weitzman, a remarkably knowledgeable and dedicated individual who shared with me of his time and his inspiration regarding this fabulous cause. Speaking of that live podcast tour, I note somewhat sadly that this is actually the final interview from that series of 25 live interviews that I conducted over a two-week period in August of 2018. And moving on forward, all interviews will be newly recorded and no longer from that wonderful and auspicious adventure that I had. Perhaps I'll have the opportunity in the not-too-distant future to again visit the Holy Land and conduct many more incredible live interviews. But for now, we wrap up that series and take you to Jerusalem for my enlightening conversation at the Pua Institute with Gidon Weitzman. We are here in Jerusalem in the offices of Pua, which is an amazing organization dealing with issues of fertility, infertility, challenges in the Jewish community. Uh, Very excited to learn about it and very excited to be here with their director of the English-speaking program, one of their senior rabbis and advisors as well. Rabbi Gidon Weitzman, how are you? Rabbi? I'm wonderful. It's It's an honor to speak with you and to meet with you and to share with you and your many listeners some of the work that we do here to help Am Yisrael. Fabulous. So uh, 
Tell us a little bit about before we get to the the birth, pun intended, of this uh, of this enterprise here. Tell us a little bit about your own personal uh, upbringing, your own personal development. Sure. Okay. So I'm not really the story here, but the, I think Pru is a story. But uh, I was born in England. Which part? I was born in. My father's an academic, so we were in very always in small communities where he was a his first a lecturer, and then a senior lecturer, and then a professor in biochemistry. Uh, so I was born in Leicester, and Leicester, then we, okay. we grew up in Cardiff. My father became professor in Bath University. Wow! Biochemist. My brother. I have two brothers who are who are microbiologists and and uh, by working in biochemistry in England as well. No, no, no one's left in England. No one's left. No one's <laughs> Even my parents made Aliyah a couple of years ago. So both oh, beautiful. Um, so you, so this was not Golders Green. <laughs> no, no, no. We did. My my grandparents live in Golders Green, so we were very involved in the community there. But uh, I grew up in small communities. Regular, normal English background, and came to Yeshiva at age 18, and uh, and then they forgot to leave. So I was <laughs> in Yeshiva for a few years. I was in the army, and then I did smicha. I got married. Um, in the meantime, was a year in England doing uh, youth work and kirov. Yeah. And then after I got married and had a couple of a few three children, we went to America for two years to Kansas City. Wow! Where get a little barbecue over there. We we had a good some good good eat good meat there. And we had um, we set up a kollel that was involved community kollel funded by the community from the conservative reform orthodox. Really we interesting. Had, we had an inter we had an interaction with all the entire community. It's not a very large uh, Jewish community, but there's still twenty thousand Jews living in Kansas City, Rabati. And we were there for two years. It was absolutely wonderful. Yeah. My wife and I, my kids. We had a child there. And then when we came back to Israel. Uh, this was in 1999, sure. it was 20 years ago, yep. I started working for Pua. I've been working for Pua almost 20 years. Unbelievable. So now, just going back to England, did your family, did you have a, a very traditional Jewish upbringing, religious upbringing? Um, I think a reg regular Jewish, uh, Anglo-Jewish background, if you know what that means. Well, can you give us a little color on that? What does that look um, like? I mean, I, com I think in England, as opposed to some other places, community is very, very important. So everybody's a member of the shul. And That's the United Synagogue. United Synagogue. I mean, United Synagogue is more London-based thing, okay. but it's also... That uh, has a that sort of ilk, um, and community is very important. And there are certain things that are very important. So kashrut is very important. Uh, some things are less important. There's no Jewish schools. There are very, very few Jewish schools. Huh. Um, I was under the impression lots of kids went to things like JFS and large J Jewish schools. Right. So JFS is uh, in in London. There are a few Jewish schools, and there. Are, uh, Across the spectrum, for JFS is maybe a little less religious, and there are those that are obviously more and more Mukharidi and Hasidish. Yeah. But uh, out of out of London, there's a f very small Jewish very small Jewish education in schools. Interesting. It's very interesting. So there were certain things that, that were that are always important to the community, and there's certain things that were just didn't didn't make it. And there were there's no there was never a yeshivot or there was right. never very very small. And I imagine where you were in these small towns, even less. It was definitely not Jewish schools. So we were basically educated at home. You know, Jewish education came from home and came from my grandfather. Was it my grandfather was in the bed in with the Chazan Yechezkel, Rav Abramsky. So he so was a great scholar. Your so grandfather he was a Talmud Chacham, and 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 that was a sort of Jewish education. But we didn't go to Jewish schools. That was it's a very Jewish thing. And my brothers, who were all spread out, I have a brother in Paris, I have a brother in Philadelphia, I have a brother in oh Chicago, uh, are all very involved in their communities. It's sort of something that's sunk into... But not necessarily in the same place religiously? If everybody's got their own... Everybody's everybody's got their own my brother in Paris is in a very big Sephardi community, his wife is in Moroccan, 
and so they're very Svardi and uh, he's but they're all of my siblings are very very involved in community and I think probably a lot of Ju English people who grew up in that sort of environment became very community-minded I think huh. you see in Israel as well that a lot of uh, Anglos yes and Brits particularly have a very strong connection to the shul and community and community events and whereas native Israelis you think have a kind of a different it's right attitude. I mean I'm in a shul I'm a rabbi of a rabbi in a shul in Modin as well ah, as okay. Did I know that? Indeed, indeed, which neighborhood in in, no, not in Buchman, in Givatsi. Okay, Givatsi. That's good. Actually, a fish called Moria. Okay. And well, our shul is probably half. Half Anglo and half. half not only Anglo, we have French and so on. Half and immigrants. And half. half immigrants and half uh, native, native Israelis. And the community is different. I mean, their influence is different. I think Israelis, you're, if in Israel, the fact you're in Israel is already you're already part, you're of, already part of the community, right? That's it. You're part of the Jewish community because we, we go to the army together, we eat together. With, we're part of the Jewish community, whereas, uh, whereas in, when you're in England or in Kansas City, if you're not part of a synagogue, you're not part of a community, then you're lost, then you're not, you're not category at all. But having said that, there are a lot of Israelis who look for a community and look for... I think it was very interesting, I remember we were growing up, it's completely off the subject. No, I'm, I'm fascinated. When we were growing up, we were in Leicester. Leicester's a very small Jewish community, but a very community-minded community. And uh, there was a lecturer in literature came to be to be a visiting professor or a lecturer in the university yeah and he came to shul and he gave a share in Kohelet or something for a couple of years and then he came back when he came back here he was in Beersheba in Ben Gurion University which is not a very religious community he was in the same department as Amos Oz he's also in the, in the literature department and when he came back here he still went to shul so we asked him what what happened in Israel, he said, in Israel, I'm, I don't need a shul. Uh -huh. But when I'm in Leicester, if I'm not part of the Jewish community, if I'm not part of the community of the of the synagogue, I'm I'm lost. I'm completely right. gone. It's interesting because I think that brings up a really interesting, again, totally off topic, but uh, a little bit of a kind of one of the critiques of Zionism, or you know, and certainly I guess of called political Zionism, uh, that whole notion of the state identity and just being Jewish in this country can replace a Jewish identity, substitute as the Jewish identity for many people. Um, and I think that was one of the concerns that some have voiced uh, about the enterprise of political Zionists over, over the years. Jewish identity in Israel is very different than it is in Chutzlands. But I think we're seeing a phenomenal uh, movement at the moment, which is that there is created a sort of an Israeli Jewish identity, which has religious elements to it. So if you listen to the radio today in Israel, you'll hear Sukim from Tehillim, and you'll hear religious themes that have gone into regular radio, not into the religious radio. Right. It's and there's a lot of very famous singers specifically, but also other uh, actors and, and television personalities who've who've become religious. I interviewed and Sivan Rav Meir. Sivan Rav Meir is, a, is an excellent example, and have become have become involved in. In Israeli society, as they were, so in the in the past, Uri Zohar became right. the Tshuva in the seventies. Right? So he stopped being an actor. Right. But Evyatar Banai, who's a singer, who became from a few years ago, is still a singer. And not only he's not only singing psukim, he's singing about Israeli society. So you see a lot of the. It's a very interesting movement, and you see in in Tel Aviv on a Friday night, there's a couple of Shabbat on the beach. Not halachic, there's musical instruments, right, right. but it's Kabbalah Shabbat. Right. It's very much common to the Jew, into the Israeli psyche that there is this, 
this Jewish identity that which is has religious elements to it. Interesting. When my wife and I were in hotel on Shabbat, we very rarely go to hotel on Shabbat, but we're in hotel on Shabbat, and you see around the room people making kiddush. They'll take a piece of a, a serviette, a napkin, they'll put it on their head, they make kiddush, and that's it. There's no, but they're making kiddush. I go to show on, on Friday night, or come back from show on Friday night in Modin, and you see people coming out of their cars with pots of food, going in to have a Shabbat meal. So there's a, it, it's a very interesting experiment. I, I mean, I think I live here. I, love, I left England and came here and put my parents eventually. I think it's a good experiment, but it's a, um, it's, it's an, there's a renewal and a revival of something different wow. than we had in America, we have in England, or right. in Warsaw, or in Yemen, or wherever else it was. Yeah, fascinating. So you, as you said, you kind of were, were here, you st- and you decided to kind of stay, uh, as you came as a youth, and I guess you liked it, uh, more Jewish than Lester. <laughs> and um, you were you went to the army. Did you have a religious role in the army, or was really? In the army, I was a regular chayal. I was in the. I was in a tank corps. I was with religious other religious boys at one point, and then as we went, we actually I was in Lebanon. Eighty-two. Eighty-two is when we went. Yeah, I was I in Lebanon. You're not that old. I didn't. Uh, I didn't need to cast you in that way. I was in <laughs> Lebanon. Eighty-eight. Eighty-eight. Okay. In Lebanon. So we'd been. We were. Our role was slightly different than before, but then already we were. I think I was in. Was maybe one other religious boy in my tank, and that was it. The army is. My my son just came out of the army. My ah. army was in. My son was in yeshiva for four years. Did he do a Hasdar program? And he, he was, by the time he went to the army, he was too old, so he did. Uh, he did a year and a quarter together with regular boys, right. not Hasdar, and it was a wonderful experience for him. Yeah. His Rosh yeshiva did not want him to go in. He said, you know, he was Mochoshem. He's doing one yeshiva, but he he just came out a couple of weeks ago. And it was a very, very powerful experience for him. He and what really did, did he feel he was able to make an impact on the other soldiers around I him? I think he made an impact, and he was impacted. Yeah. I think, you know, this is Israeli society. These are, we are fighting not with other people. We're fighting with our brothers. Yeah. They're our brothers. I'll tell you, I'll tell you two stories. Yeah. So a friend of ours was in the army many, many years ago. And he was talking with his commander about irreligious society. And he said, Gamza'am, which means those also, they're also Jews. He says, commander said, no, not gam ze'am, not there also. Ze'am, right. those are the people, these are our brothers. This is it, yeah. This is it. That's one story. I tell you another story, it was recently, we were in a restaurant in Modin. We were, my wife and I, kids, and a guy came in next, standing next to us, him and his wife. Not religious. And as they started their meal, four soldiers walked in and sat a few tables away. He called over the manager, this guy sitting next to us, and said, I'll pay for their meal. He didn't know them, didn't know who they were has no connection with them. We're brothers. These wow. are our brothers. And that's that's very much an Israeli reality. Beautiful. I don't think you see outside of Israel. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So you were you did the army, you did all of these you're studying and you kind of got yourself to this point where you were obviously searching for uh, the right outlet for your uh, rabbinical talents, I guess <laughs> you'll say. And uh, you discovered this place called Pua. Now Pua is a very unusual name. Uh, it has a certainly has a biblical connotation and uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that is and, and what this organization does sure. how you came to find it sure so Mahon Pro was established uh, almost 30 years ago um, by Rabbi Menachem Borstein who's still the head of the, of the Institute and it was set up because and if you know but 40 years ago almost till today the 25th of July 1978 was born the first child through IVF well wow. Louise Brown she was born in Manchester I, I know that and I was born three months later Joe. So, you know <laughs> I, I don't remember it quite <laughs> 
so I was already boom but I wasn't I was a young I was 11 which is actually the same 25th of July and is my birthday oh, I guess so. so that's how I remember her there we go. that was 40 years ago so when she was born obviously that was an amazing time her birth was heralded on the front pages of newspapers world round lovely sure. Louise beautiful Louise super baby it was a huge time and the Rabbanim at that point really were asked okay this is great technology let's use it you have to understand that in the community in the Jewish and non-Jewish community about one in seven people have problems getting pregnant which sounds like a tremendous tremendous number of people it sure does um, so we're talking in the in our community if I say to everybody I say to my rabbinic students I taught in Yeshiva University for many years and I say to my students you know if you have a community of a hundred families of which 50 families are in the are in the age group that are trying to have pregnant trying to get pregnant so one in seven is eight three or, or four nine, families yeah. eight or nine families in your community that's mm -hmm. a big deal that's gonna be in every family right yeah. so that's a lot that's a big thing and doesn't mean everybody's gonna have to do IVF doesn't mean everybody's gonna have to have the most extreme treatment but th those people have a challenge getting pregnant Now, when you say a challenge that that may mean they could get pregnant after a few months or a year or does that mean only a so number of generally years? we say generally we say that a fertility problem is a couple trying to get pregnant for a year unsuccessfully okay so but it could be there's actually a tube of Moshe Feinstein that he says you know we'll wait for a minute because some of those percentages will get pregnant in the second year that's true but uh, but a challenge challenge doesn't mean that you're never going to get pregnant Challenge means that at the moment we have a problem that needs to be treated some yeah. of it can be low-tech some of it can be with medication some of it can be with intimacy, which is a whole area we'll deal with, which right. I um, will speak about it later. And some of it uh, will need to go to very, very more advanced complex and yeah. advanced and, and, and intensive treatment. Right. So that was a real breakthrough that we could now treat pretty much all of those people. And the poskim had to think about what did that mean. And most of the, rab the rabbis asked in the 70s and the beginning of the 80s came out against IVF. They were concerned, they have no idea what's going on in the lab, and we're concerned that there would be mistakes. We were concerned that there would be a question of lineage later on. Who says that this child is those parents? We don't mm. know. We have a principle, halachic principle, that Rov Bal. We assume that if a couple living together, the husband is the father of those children. The mother, we know, we see her, she's delivering the baby. But we assume that, she's, that he's the father. Once we put in a third party, once we put in a doctor or a lab or other people's sperm and other people's eggs and other people's embryos that are in the lab, that are being stored in the same facility, we possibly lose that presumption. So almost everybody came out against IVF. So about, say about 30 years ago, it's about 10 years after Louis Baron was born. And uh, in Israel, very quickly, in the early 80s already, there was a child born from IVF. And we have to understand that so in those 40 years, today we have over 5 million children born from IVF. Worldwide? Worldwide. Not only in Israel. Sure. <laughs> in Israel, we have about 1 in 20 births was conceived through IVF. So and you, if, you, um, I don't know if on your trips you've been to an Israeli hospital to see births, but there's a lot of children born here. Amazing. Thousands of children. So we're talking about a lot of people. It's a very common procedure. So Rav Mordechai was the chief rabbi of Israel. At the time, he was starting to get questions, and he turned to Rav Borstein and said, you have to take this as your baby. I'm he knew him as... I'll use your pun as <laughs> He knew him just from around... Well, Rav Mordechai had written a book on Tarot on the Laws of Family Purity. Okay. And so he and Rav Borstein had been involved in some of the editing of that book. 
So he knew him, and he was a person that was involved. He'd written a book on a toilet, and he'd been involved in finding the the vessels of the temple. So he was a real activist and kind of a yeah, was it the a go guy? A tour, yeah, a tour guy. So he said, "You have to, you have to take this as your baby." And Rabushin went to the labs and said, "What's going on? Who's the who are the experts? Let's see what's going on." And then he thought, "Is it possible that there could be mistakes? How can we have mistakes?" He went to Rishlamazam. He said to Rishlamazam, there's no possibility of mistakes because I've seen. They're very, very careful. Rishlamazam said to him, go to the lab on Friday afternoon, 15 minutes before they're going to close. And then tell me. He came back and said, you're right. <laughs> when uh, they're rushed and when they're pressured and when they want to go home. Things could happen in the... Things that were human, yeah, human beings. Yeah. So we set up a whole system of supervision to ensure there's no mistake in the lab. Just like in kosher food, you have a supervisor. Right, even so more. Kosher even sperm, even more here. Even more here. Because yeah. in food, the, most of the supervision is that someone doesn't have to be there the whole time. Right. With here, you have to be there the entire time. Right. So it's very, very high quality, high standard. And he met the doctors. He'd seen what's going on. He went back to the rabbis and said, okay, this and this and this is going on. This is what this means. This is my supervision. Will you permit it? And they almost all said yes. So we've seen a revolution. Including the ones who had previously said no. Including men, the ones who had previously said no. Yeah. Let's take an example, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Mm-hmm. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was very much against fertility treatment for some of the reasons that we said before. And there was a meeting between Rav Mordechai Liao and Rav the Rebbe in which he outlined what supervision was. And then there was various things the Rebbe wrote to one of his Talmudim. This is how we should do, have a supervision. And then he started permitting he was much more permissive in, in what he would permit to be done with fertility. Now, presumably that would only be at these labs in Israel where the supervision was present. So today we have, so that was, that was poor 30 years ago. So today we have supervision all over the world. Really? So we have in America and South America, North America, Canada, we've been involved in supervision about 95 facilities. Wow. So all over the country. So somebody just has to make sure that they're sending to that we, lab. So a couple will call me up and we have either where should I go to? These are the places we go. Or I'm having in this place, could you supervise it ad hoc? Uh, uh. Um, and then throughout Israel, obviously, we've had a supervision in, in France. In fact, we're in the office of the French department, and they, they have for supervision in, Fra- in Paris. We have throughout Eastern Europe, a lot of fertility treatments are done. And we have sister organizations in Australia, in South Africa, who are also doing supervision that we're, we're involved in and we've helped train and we have a common conversation. How have the labs responded to this? So most of the labs... <laughs> letting a rabbi into there? Sure. You know, it's most, kind of weird. <laughs> most of the labs... I mean, I think it's a bracha of pua that the labs will allow people in. Some people are very resistant. The truth is oftentimes in America it's easier. Because hmm. understand, like, it's a religious thing. Ah. But in Israel, like, what do you mean? I'm religious as well. You know, how can you... I, I, you know, I'm not good enough. <laughs> can you imagine that your wife would be cooking rice? And she's checking rice. And if people met check rice still in America, here in Israel, people check rice. So we check rice, and a woman, another woman would come in and say, I'll look over your shoulder, see how you're doing it. Or checking lettuce. She would say, wait, you don't trust me? I know what I'm doing. So some people are resistant. I think that we come and we see what's very important and what's Pua's real motto is we're working together. We're not against the establishment, working together with you. We're helping to give our couples access right. to this technology. Before poor, people didn't want to do it. Right. The rabbis said you can't do it. And so the truth is you're bringing them a lot of uh, commerce. Yeah. We're, allowing to, we're, we're allowing them to people to do it. So give an example of the Lubavitches. Lubavitches started coming to treatment. So then the 
the lab called up and said, how come some of these Lubavitchers have fertility problems? He said, no, they always have fertility problems <laughs> because they were treated with yeah. them. And I write so the Rebbe himself did not have children. And the Rebbe himself did not have And lots of other poskim didn't have children, yeah. as we know. So the working together, being part of the establishment, showing that, and, and thank God, Pua has become very, very versed in the technology. So one, so one of the things we do is supervision. And another thing we do is counseling. So couples come. We get about 200 calls every single day. Every day? Yeah. So you'll sit here for an hour. You'll see the 200 calls a, a day. day? Yeah. Worldwide. Wow. So we're having calls from, literally, I have calls from New Zealand and from Hong Kong. I have couples in India, couples in, in obviously, throughout Israel, America, all the places we say. And each one is from a couple that is struggling well, with Each infertility? one is with something to do with many, the myriad number of things that we're dealing with, which we'll, we'll, we'll speak about. And um, we counsel couples. So we counsel couples as what is medically available, what is where they should go, referrals, what should be done, explaining the procedure. The doctor doesn't have time to explain to you. Right. You're going to come in. You're going to this and this and this is going to happen. Right. And this is why we're doing this. Couple, we get every day. The doctor said I should do this procedure. Should I do it? Well, the reason that the doctor said that is because A, B, and C. The doctor doesn't have time to explain mm-hmm. to you. I'm taking this medication. Should I be taking it? The reason that this doc- medication gave the doctor gave you this medication because that medication does this. So it's a lot of explaining what are the procedures. Yeah. Meant to help people, support people. Nobody is excited about going through a fertility treatment. Everybody's uh, upset about it. Everybody, nobody gets married and says, "Great, let me do IVF. They'll be wonderful." Right. Uh, some people know they have a problem before, but even them, it's a it's a process, and we need to calm them and, and support them. And so that's part of what we do. It's, it's as we said, about two hundred calls a day. And, uh, and we also educate. So we educate rabbis, we educate doctors, we educate the public, we educate. You're here during the summer, but if you're here on a regular, during the year, I'll yeah. show you we have, there's, we have conference rooms here which are always busy and always people coming to coming through to study. We've done online courses, we've done, you know, we've done some Hashem, some good stuff. That's what it is. I got into here, you want to hear about Yeah. Poor. I studied with Reb in, in Kolo before I, before I went to Kansas City. Ah. Um, and... I said to him, you know, you really need someone who speaks English because everything's in English today. Yeah. So he said, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's very nice. But <laughs> it was very small. It was the same him. And then it was a, I was driving back Motzei Shabbat with my wife from somewhere we've been staying, and I hear on the radio this an article about a new study that had come out in New England Journal of Medicine, which is a very, very prestigious, very prestigious yeah, yeah. journal. And it was about how y- whether you can get pregnant after ovulation or do you have to have relations before ovulation there was a huge very very landmark study about five and a half thousand people so i said to him i, I called up my brother who was in uh he was in washington dc at the time studying, right. he was working i said i heard about this article can you send me the article so he faxed it to me it was still in the days of faxed machines um and i said i brought his article to revolution next week i said this is a very important article he said oh that's good but it's could you maybe translate it for me? I said, you uh, see, I told him. I told you. <laughs> That's right. So he said, you know, we want the idea of Pua. We have 12 counselors here today. And I have a counselor. And each one is an expert in? Each one is an expert in everything. Treatments yeah, or? Yeah, yeah, everything. Okay. Everybody has their own little expertise as well, but everybody's got their... And these are licensed ca- by some kind of body? I mean, what is it? They've been all trained. Trained by Pua. Trained by, by Pua. And I have a, have a counselor also in America. So we have, we have 13 all in all. Um... And he, they're not just people that came out of yeshiva and know the, know the text. They're people that have been involved with communities. So he said, 
when I first started, you haven't really got enough communal experience. Go and get a go and be a community for few years, and then you come back again, and you'll speak to me. So when we came back from Kansas City, I started. I came and I said, "Okay, I had two years of, commun- of very intense communal <laughs> work. I'm ready." And I'm and I studied the the sugyon. I'm wanting to learn, and I started training. And um, 20 years later, I'm still here. So what would, what would like a typical day look like for you? Oh wow! So if, so Rebel Lewis, who we just met before, who's one of my colleagues, uh, also an English speaker. He has a wonderful uh, PowerPoint presentation called The Day in the Life of Poor, where he goes through more and more and more and more questions. And uh, the idea is to show that it's really can be from couples calling up with questions of uh, related to family purity, the laws of family purity, which is obviously has an impact. Women who are ovulating before going to mikvah, which is a whole, a whole big issue in of itself, through to couples who've been married for... 10 years, 15 years, not unsuccessful, been through treatment, haven't been through treatment, uh, family, Sean uh, of family strife issues, intimacy issues, through to couples who've had IVF who need to have egg donation or sperm donation or gestational carrier, what you used to call surrogates, and a whole myriad of, 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 of things. So it's really when you pick up the phone, you have no idea what's going to be. Problems during pregnancy, prenatal testing, they found a problem with a baby during the ultrasound, what do we do? Um, genetics has become a much larger thing. Single women freezing their eggs is a big issue now. The women who are getting older, who we can freeze their eggs to preserve their fertility for a little longer in order that when they get married, even if they get married a little older, they'll still be able to have their own children. So we're everything, everything. Now are you doing the actual any of the actual counseling or you're doing, dealing more with the Jewish law side of things? Or so we're out, out, the way Pura works is you get one person who gives you everything. So the one person will give you the counseling, i.e., we said the referrals, the explanation, the Jewish law, but also the, the support. And if I can't do it, I'll send it to somebody who can. So mm-hmm. we work with a lot of organizations, or a lot of counselors, a lot of psychologists to deal with, um, with just sitting with a couple to, to, to counsel them. There's a lot of issues people go through. Yeah. And there's a lot of sexuality issues that people go to. We've trained a whole cadre of men and especially women to deal with intimacy issues. Can you speak a little bit about that? Why, sure. how, why that comes into the picture? So the reason, that what happened at Pua is that over the t- 30 years that we've been here, 20 years that I've been here, Pua has, sp- has become a sort of a magnet for, but for the rabbis and for, the, for their congregants for medical professionals to look that this is the people that deal with fertility or with women's health. And women's health and fertility are now much wider issues. So we said genetics mm-hmm. may not be a problem, problem getting pregnant. It's a problem having a healthy child. So today I want to say that Pua is, its mission statement is to have healthy children. Have children who are healthy. So intimacy became into that because first of all, we found that there's a lot of couples that that's part of their fertility challenge, is their intimacy issues, is their ability to perform sexually and at the right time and with their, uh, and, and that also there's a woman in, in Harvard called Alice Domar who has a whole program called Mind Body that not only does fertility cause pressure, but fertility is caused by pressure. And so a lot of it is reducing that pressure, but of course, Fertility itself becomes that sexuality and intimacy become 
a functionary thing and don't become part of bringing a couple together. And so a lot of the work in intimacy is to go back to having health and intimacy. As a result of that, we also got into dealing with intimacy on the, on the wider level. So newly married who have problem having relations, people who their life changes. We, Benjamin David, the, the head of the French department, and myself published a very nice paper in one of the medical journals about sexuality in older couples, mm. which is a whole huge area. Uh, how do we deal with the changing sexuality? And so we, we've become, I, I was trained by Barilan and by Pua to be a sex counselor, as were several of the other, tra of the other rabbis here. And we do that as well. So that's also part of a somewhat a corollary, somewhat a connected right. to the whole mission of healthy Jewish children. Right. What are some of the other major treatments that are popular nowadays and, and how are you involved with them? I said a lot of, a lot of genetics. So genetics is not only prenatal testing and checking like Doi Sharim, checking, checking before you get married, but there's a lot of couples who know they have a genetic abnormality and want to make sure they have healthy children. The way to do that today is to do an in vitro fertilization, to take the eggs when they've been fertilized. We now have all the genetic material, so we know that that child is gonna have Tay-Sachs, but we know that, that that child could also be autistic, or we know that that child could have, you know, short or tall or long or, or left-handed or whatever other the things that we wanna discard, deaf, whatever it is that we think, not that they put all those in the same category. So today we're a lot of times doing a fertility treatment to analyze the eggs to see what genetic makeup they have. It's also common in older women uh, who have more what's called aneuploidy, which is eggs that are defective. Um, so we have a, 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 that's become a very standard uh, treatment in a, in a lot of genetics cases. And to decide with couples what is a valid reason to do that and what is an invalid reason to do that because left-handedness i happen to be left-handed me too <laughs> no, you too good so, but that's where we're getting on the chavitz Haim was left-handed as we know leonardo da vinci was left-handed on to put them all stuck together uh you know being left-handed is is not a, is not an abnormality but uh shortness depends what shortness you know so so there are a whole range of things that we could think are abnormal uh but are they really are those things that we want to eradicate so there's a lot of counseling that at what point do you want to do you want to deal with that? I give you an example that's maybe some of your listeners will, will, will appreciate. There is a genetic abnormality that's very common in the Jewish community called BRCA, BRCA. BRCA is, is basically the following idea. Every single person has cancer. Cancer is a terror, you know, word that used to be, you couldn't even say the word. Today, Baruch Hashem, most people have cancer get better from it. Most people who have cancer don't die from cancer. So, but everybody has cancer. What is cancer? Cancer is a proliferation of cells that is unchecked. That's what it is. So everybody has that. The only thing is your body and my body, hopefully, is that it identifies those cells, corrects them, or eradicates them. A woman who has BRCA, or a man, but it's more common with women, but a woman can, a man can also have, doesn't have that same system of, of identifying and eradicating and changing those cells is less effective. And therefore, it's possible that that person has a more propensity to get cancer. So BRCA in the general American, North American community is about 0.3% of women have it. In the Jewish community, it's about 2.5%. So we have a much, much higher incidence of BRCA. So should we be checking every single young girl in school for BRCA? And then when we found out that 
2.5% of the population have it. So then should we be doing PGD? Should we be doing checking the embryos of these women to make sure, make sure sorry, that their daughters don't have it? Yeah. So those are big debates in the community. Yeah. And we have to look at who, who we deal with. So sometimes if we would check a woman when she's young and she knows she has BRCA, she would have to then tell it to the potential husband so then maybe she would have problems getting married. So do we want to open that up yeah. and check every single person? Like we did, with, like we go back to Tech and Tay-Sachs. There, there was a question in, this, in the 80s and 90s. Do you want to go back to that and to check everybody and create healthy children, but also create many, many problems? So that's a big debate that you have to have. We can have it on this level, on the macro level, but you have to understand we have it on the micro level with this couple. The woman comes and says, my sister has BRCA, should I be checked? My children, I have a, I have a woman in my community has, who has BRCA. She has daughters. So should I be checking my daughters? Should I be, is it irresponsible to have daughters who potentially have this genetic abnormality? That's a big debate. Yeah. So those are things I think we're involved in. That's one area. Another very common area, and I mentioned it just before, is, is single women. Single women freezing yeah. their eggs become a big, big thing. It was, all the rabbis were against it five years ago and now it's become very very common the rabbis condone and think it's a good idea encourage it because the rabbis were against it because they thought the women will freeze eggs and therefore they won't get married and we said it's not, it's not that's not the case they're freezing eggs and getting married now they want to get married they don't want to use them as outside, single mothers, as yeah. single mothers. Um, and so to encourage people to help we've in, in Israel been able to um, get a much more competitive rate from the from the clinics, it should be cheaper because it's an expensive procedure. In Israel, in America, we had a lot of awareness evenings, and also to be able to get, we have clinics where we work, especially in New York, to give us a very competitive rate um, in order to to reduce that to make it normal. Nobody wants to speak about it. When they go to an evening like that, they said to the women, they came out and spoke about it. That means that they're admitting to all these people, I'm willing to do that. That's great. That's wonderful. And, and we found that a lot of those women, when they do it and they freeze eggs, they do get married and it produces the pressure. And so that's a big area that we've not only been following the trend, we've almost been creating the trend. Interesting. We've been you know, encouraging it. You mentioned the cost of these procedures. I know that can be incredibly prohibitive yeah. in many cases, especially over years and rounds and cycles. Is, is that something that PUA helps with? I know there are organizations in the U.S., maybe Bonet Olam, Bonet Olam yes, sure. that, that help um, you know, with actually funding treatments for people that because who could afford 10, 20, 30, more thousand dollars and sometimes multiple times for these treatments. Is that something you're involved with? Do you work with these other organizations like the Bodo right. to help refer people to them? And how does that all work? So somebody once said that, you know, you got to put it to find out where you, where you need to be treated and then to go to Bonon to get the, the money for the treatment. They pay for it. <laughs> They'll pay for it. Uh, it's not 100%, uh, but it's a good analogy. Uh, I definitely do. There are people that we sent to Bonon who need money. We also have a very good relationship with a lot of clinics, so they'll give us a reduction. So I'm not going to give you money, right. but basically if I'm giving you a much better rate, I'm basically giving right. you $5,000. Right. Uh, we actually now in a process of widening that in North America. In Israel, it's less of an issue because Israel's not so expensive. And is it state-funded state still funded here? Even, even many, many things. Okay. Um, That's not considered like a luxury or an added... Many things, up to, up to two children. So I have a couple now. We have three children who are now... We were in conversation this week about what do we do for the fourth child. Right, fourth children is still not considered a huge family in the Jewish community. 
but in America, that's we're we're in the process of expanding our expanding our ability to get better rates. We're going to call preferred rates from different clinics around the country. In Israel, what we have is that the medication is expensive, and um, in America, it's also medication expensive. There's also organizations that will cover non-Jewish organizations that can give you a grant for the medication, so we can help a couple have that for single women and for married couples. In Israel, we have sometimes there are couples who have who donate medication through a party in a legal way. It's not so easy to do it. It's, ah. a, it's very easy to do it illegally. It's <laughs> more complex than legally. Obviously, we're trying to do everything legally. So there's a way to direct them in order that they should get their medication at a much reduced cost. Well, um, a cost is definitely a, an expensive, a very rich man's medicine, fertility. Right. Uh, Baruch Hashem Israel doesn't see it that way. It doesn't see it like in America. Uh, but our community, I mean, the amazing thing about the Jewish community is that we help each other. I'm sure you've, you've interviewed many Jews. Yes. I'm sure you see that's true. I w- I'll tell you a story. I was in South Africa um, a couple of months ago, and uh, a student of mine who actually was here in, in Yeshiva University here in Israel for a few, three years, who's now rabbi there, Shmuley Kagan, he told me the following story. He said that when he was, a, he was in Yeshiva in South Africa, they had a day where the Bacharim called up donors and said, you know, can you support the Yeshiva? Which is perfectly a normal uh, yeah. procedure in Yeshiva. The cleaner in the shiva, black guy, you know, South African, said to him, uh, what are you doing? You know, what are you he told him, I'm calling him, he said, do you know those people? I said, no, but and that's what we do in the Jewish community, we help each other. He said, you don't even know those people and they help you. It doesn't matter. So for a Jew, we'll help other people. So if you're in a, I would hope that every community, and there are, there are common initiatives in lots of communities around the, around the country, around America, that the community will help people in the community. There's something like that in Toronto, Small Wonders, Menachem Kuhl. There's something like that in Boca Raton under Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. Sure. There are different the initiatives, right? There are different initiatives around the country that if someone in our community has a problem, we'll help them. Uh, and that's a very Jewish thing. Why in Israel is there the law that you can do two treatments right. and have two kids? That doesn't make any sense. There's no law anywhere in the world. Uh, there was a guy in, in, in Belgium, De Vroy, who wrote a book called Baby Making. It was published by Univers- Oxford University Press. It, was ba- it wasn't so much about fertility. It was about the laws of fertility around the world, mostly yeah. in Europe. But there's no mention of Israel. So I wrote to him and I said, I think that you missed out a very important legal system because we have the most progressive fertility laws in the world, definitely in Europe and maybe in the world. So he wrote back some laconic answer. I think it was some, maybe some, you know, anti-Semitic uh, sure. element there. But but Israel's a very fascinating uh, fertility law. It's very very permissive, and part of the reason is because it's a demographic. We believe in Jewish children, and uh, we believe in in the importance of it. We're a com- community which is very much children's based, and uh, I don't think it's an, a s- similar thing to poor anywhere else. Um, you know, I think it's very much that we a couple don't look at money as an obstacle. Right. So does the organization have to raise a lot of money and, and just for its staff and its services? Is we it government a very, funding part? very small budget. I mean, it's laughable what our really? budget is. I won't tell you on, on air, but it's laughable what our budget is. And people are very, there's a lot of, on, people are getting paid, but very modest salaries. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and to try and keep it, you know, keep it cost low. We get a, we get a very, very small government uh, fund for for mostly for the supervision. Um, we used to get more, and that's changed. And, and we're p- 
people who are things important pick up the tab. Obviously, we've had about 150,000 people have been through poor. So the alumni will often the alumni they want to they feel importance they, they, they especially if you were successful sure um they want to give hakar to tov there are couples that want to give back to a specific couple so we have a couple in America mm. that maybe will say I want to pay for someone else's treatment or I want to give back to the community. Are there something people will call up and say hey don't tell anyone my sister is struggling I want you to you know this should fund her treatment anonymously we have had that yeah, yeah. sure I, don't, I want someone somebody specific or I want someone someone in you know someone general. But Baruch Hashem, people, I mean, we, we have a fundraising effort in Israel and America, and uh, it's an important organization that hopefully it should continue. So what's, <laughs> explain the name Pua for those who right. aren't familiar so with that. So Pua was the, was the midwife in Egypt who uh, helped have Jewish children, which sort of sounds appropriate now. We're doing the same thing, helping having Jewish children. It's also an acronym in Hebrew, in Hebrew ah. which is Poriut Rufual Pialacha. Poriut is fertility, Rufua is medicine. Alpi halacha in accordance with halacha. So pori is in accordance with Jewish law. So it's fertility and and, and medicine accordance with Jewish law, and that's the name Pua. Who thought of it? Rabbi Borstein, I think, was his. <laughs> Rabbi Borstein's brainwave. As many many other things here are. He set up the supervision. He set up the counseling. He set up the the, the education. He did yeah. everything. Now he's obviously he's been you know thirty years. He's a big staff. He's doing it. But he he was the brain behind many many of the initiatives here. There's actually in South Africa. We have a, a sister organization, organization that we're involved in. Rabbi Gideon Fox is the runs the supervision, and they called it Shifra, who was the other the other the midwife. other midwife. So we have two, both the midwives are covered. They said, why not poor, why not Shifra? I said, well, Shifra's in Australia, in South Africa. He was originally Australian. So um, uh, so we have we have Shifra as well. Well, can, <laughs> can you uh, can you share any? Uh, any stories of any individuals? I could share stories for for many yeah, hours. There's one or two that are just many really exceptional that, that show kind of I'll tell highlight you, the work. I'll tell you what, I, mean, I can give you hundreds and hundreds of stories. Baruch Hashem, every day there's a story. Um, the, the couple came here, I mean, this is not, you know, some time ago, that she got married, she was 50 years old. Nice couple, first time married, she'd been a career woman in, in North America. He'd been married before, but... No, no children, and, and he was a little older, 52. They got married. She had a regular period. Never had any concern to think there was any fertility problem. Generally, we say today that over 45, you're right. probably not going to get pregnant by your own eggs. Probably not going to happen. And, and that natu naturally can happen. Naturally, things can happen. But through treatment, the cutoff in Israel is 45. In many countries, 43, 44, because we never really had a good reported case of success over that age with a person's own eggs. They're very sporadic reports. So she came to the doctor a few months after you got, after you got married, not pregnant. And the doctor said, well, I understand we're going to speak about donor egg. And she was absolutely flabbergasted. I said, donor eggs means we're going to take an egg from someone else because your eggs are not valuable. She said, but I have a regular period. He said, but you look at the statistics. That doesn't, you're not going to get pregnant. She came here. She was flabbergasted. She said, no one ever told me this. Why didn't anybody tell me 20 years ago yeah. that I wasn't going to get out to get pregnant? I would have got married. I would have put my career on hold. I would have got married. Like, why was this information not shared with me? And there was actually a very fascinating campaign a couple of decades ago now, maybe 15 years ago, by the American Society of Reproductive Medicine to educate people that you can't have, you're not fertile forever. It doesn't happen. And a couple came here, and they sat here, and it was, and, and we spoke about egg donation, which is a very halachic minefield, and yes. lots of problems. And in the end, they were able to get permission to do it, and it didn't work. He came here, 
And he said, I, 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 that's it. We can't afford it. I've got to give up. And she's, she's just going to go on and on and on until we, until we have a baby. I can't. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of personal pressure, financial pressure, physically d demanding. I, I don't want to do it again. So I said to him, oh, it's my we'll go, let's go and pray evening prayers up here. There's a synagogue here. Now there's actually a synagogue here in the ground, but then there wasn't. Uh, so I said, what, tell me what, how many more times? Let, let's break it down. Never, how many more times did you? Let's say she said, I'm going to do it two more times. Would you go for two more times? He said, two more times I wanted to go for, but no more than that. Came back and said, okay, let's talk about how many times you can do it. And we decided, we came to a decision, she's going to do it two more times. The next time she got pregnant with twin boys. Wow. I was at the Brit in Jerusalem. Wow. And it was wonderful. And uh, they have kids. They're now older. They're now quite grown up. So that was, a, that was an amazing story. Just to show that information that we have and the ex access to information, how to help people in the counseling. And there was a very important uh, case, I think, in, in my education as well. We had a case in, in, in South America that we flew. There was no supervisor available in Argentina. It wasn't in Argentina, but let's call it Argentina. And we flew a, new, a supervisor from New York to Argentina. When she was there supervising treatment, I told her, he's got to be there the whole time. Her husband had a heart attack back in New York. She can't leave. I've got to supervise. Hmm. So we had to send another supervisor from New York to Argentina. And only when the other supervisor arrived and relieved her was she able to go back. Oh, to my husband. goodness. So they have such mysterious efforts, such, such dedication these women have. They've been supervised on, they've been there on Pesach and on Purim and on Shabbat every week. And on, on the most inconvenient days, they come and they make sure that there will never be a question of lineage of these children. It's an amazing dedication that the staff have here. Yeah. And uh, these women really there, and, and they're really incredible what they're willing to do. To this, and she waited there. This is my job at the moment. Husband's getting treatment. Yeah. He'll be okay. And wow. on the, maybe on the merit of that, the husband go better. Unbelievable. <laughs> what do you think is that, uh, kind of the next frontier in fertility <laughs> treatment? And are there, I imagine there's going to be a lot of ethical dilemmas that are still coming down the pike with you know, and, uh, genetic engineering and sure. all the things like that. What's kind of on the horizon? Um, do you, are you dealing more and more with secondary infertility as well? Kind of what, what are the next the steps and frontiers. I'd say I have a, a, a younger colleague in my room, shares a room, a, a office with me, and he hears me say the whole time, I'm not a prophet, I'm not a doctor, I'm just a rabbi. So I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> He's the whole time, that's his keyword. I'm not, a, I'm not a prophet, I'm not a doctor, I'm just a rabbi. So we don't know what's going to happen. We do know what the research. Research is, first of all, we found out a lot that we don't know. So we thought that we understood how fertilization works, we don't. We thought we understood how uh, implantation works and we don't. You know, with a lot of things that we don't know that we're finding out how much we do know, how much we don't know. There was actually a vessel, something called an embryoscope, in the incubator, took pictures every 10 minutes of the developing egg. And we learned so much about how eggs develop that we don't know what's normal, what's abnormal. So we have to have a, a lot of humility to think that we we're very, very smart, but God is much smarter than we are. <laughs> and He does things that we have no idea what is going on. 
So that's a thing on what's going on at the moment. What, what is going to be the future? I think a lot of genetics, there's something called CRISPR, which you may have heard about, which is genetic, as you said, genetic engineering, changing. Not what you said, we spoke before about removing the unwanted genetic yeah. abnormality. We talk about now changing it, going in and snipping out eggs. Designer babies, I mean. How will that change? How will that impact? What will be the, at the end of the day, there is a diversity of genetics, which is healthy. It's not, what will we do when we eradicate those unhealthy genetic rates? We don't know. Um, I think that we're looking more, you have to understand that there's more and more children that are born because of genetic issues. There's more and more children born to single women. And as you said, to, to I mean, single women, meaning women who froze eggs when they were single, now married. Uh -huh. So the eggs were, was doing a treatment through in vitro fertilization because the woman froze them. She was smart. She froze them when she was single. The guy called me up. He said he's going out with a girl and she, he's a little older. She's a little older and she froze eggs. I said, what's the problem? He said, well, if she froze eggs, maybe she's not so religious, she was thinking. I said, no, she's excellent. She's very smart. And that's exactly the woman you should marry. Maybe you don't deserve her. <laughs> <laughs> she's the, that smart person is who you want to marry. So, um, but those women are going to, if they use those eggs, they're going to use them through in vitro, in vitro fertilization. So we're seeing more and more in vitro. Uh, we're looking now at, there's um, things like a uh, artificial uterus. There was a sheep that was just delivered through an artificial uterus about a year, about six months ago. There's, we're looking at creating cells. So we can take a somatic cell, we can take a regular cell of a person and create an egg or sperm cell. So we have a man who doesn't have any sperm production or a woman doesn't have any eugenesis, doesn't create eggs. We could create eggs and sperm uh, and we could fertilize them. We're looking at stem cells, you know, the development of stem cells and to do with lots of thera therapeutic thing, uses of stem cells. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things on the, on the horizon. I say to every couple, couple say, okay, we know that on the horizon there's this development in Japan of uh, the developing sperm cells. Yeah, but I say, but we don't know how long it's going to take. So if you want to have a baby now, you should do what's available now. And those things may may be a year, may take five years, may take 20 years. We don't know how long it's going to become until we have clinically approved treatments. We have to understand also that in the, in the years that we've treated women's health, we've done a lot of good. We've also done some harm. Hmm. You know, we've given hormones which have maybe had sometimes a good effect or sometimes a bad and adverse effect. Interesting. We, gave, we used to give women thalidomide to help... Uh, recurrent miscarriage and we have children who were born with short limbs we gave women DS to help uh, their health and we've created women with deformed uteri so we've done a lot of we've done some harm we've done a lot of good done some harm we have to be very careful about it we have to say we have a lot of humility yeah um, I tell you and, and uh, it was a group here came to Pua here in Jerusalem who uh, from I think from Australia Seven, seven or eight young people who were on a year program. And we do a lot of that. We had a crew like this. Tours and things like that. Yeah, they were here. And the one of the things is here is here is poor because they, A, they should hear about it. It's in a great organization. And some of them will need it. And some of them maybe will, will know someone who needs it. So after the lecture, uh, one of the kids puts his hand up. He says he wants to say something to the group. Okay, what is it? He said, I was conceived by in vitro fertilization. It's now 18. So all his friends are, wow, that's cool. <laughs> are you normal? Can we touch you? Wow, that's cool. <laughs> so he's always saying that in somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but who knows that in you know, 10 years' time, if I'm still here, or 20 years' time, 30 years' time, 
I'll give a lecture, there'll be eight kids, and one will say, actually, I was conceived naturally. They'll be saying, that's cool. Are you normal? <laughs> so we're getting to have more and more fertility, yeah. not always for fertility reasons. And it's very interesting. It's very fascinating. We can save people's prob- lives and problems. Uh, we have to be careful not to overstep our bounds. Yes, that's, that's kind of the larger dialogue that's going on now in, in, with the amazing advances in, in modern science. Um, you know, the ethical dilemmas, the downsides, the, uh, the discretion and humility that's needed to manage these abilities. Not if you give a, a child a loaded shotgun, it's probably not the best idea. And so knowing how to wield these tools is as important as having them uh, themselves. And of course, having in, in the Jewish world and in the religious Jewish world, having people not only conversant in the ethical use of the technologies, but also in the Jewish application of those technologies Definitely. is incredibly important. And it seems that Pua is really filling that uh, void along with many others in a, in a marvelous way. So Rabbi Guido Weissman, thank you so much for sharing of your time, your expertise, and, uh, and your passion for this amazing organization. Thank you so, so much. I'll, I'll close with one Please. thought, and that's related to what you said. You know, we, have a, we have an ongoing conversation with many, many great rabbis around the world and who give us input and we've uh, to be able to solve questions and to be able to think about questions and uh, I've been honored to be able to speak in various forums, not Jewish forums, about different religious approaches to fertility or to sexuality or to and you know you have a Christian and a Muslim and a Jewish and some kind of secular ethicist and I have this real Yitzhara at the end to say okay ladies and gentlemen you've heard from three major world religions which would you like to be a member of? <laughs> and I think we do really well. I think that Judaism has always embraced technology. You know, the Rambam, the Ramban, were doctors themselves, embraced technology, used it, and used it wisely. You know, I spoke before about a holistic picture. The yeah. Rambam writes about that. The Maimonides writes about when you come across a tree, you don't just treat the symptom, you have to treat the person. Um, that, that approach, that understanding that our tradition has always embraced technology but used it wisely, used it with God's hand. Seeing ourselves as emissaries of the Almighty is really a very powerful thing and I think it's endearing. I think that we, you know, we do well and my non-Jewish colleagues are always very impressed that we're, we've really come very, very far as a, as a people with all of our, those trying to kill us from outside and uh, all around the world and yet we persevere and we can pursue science and we have children. I think it's an amazing thing. Rabbi Gideon Weitzman, the Pua Institute, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash jews you should know finally if you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to jews you should know